On June 9th, 1912, a woman named Edith Harper, who served as private secretary to the famed British journalist William Stead, set at attention as she listened to his account, brief but gut-wrenching as it was of the last moments of Titanic's sinking. Everyone said the ship was unsinkable, he recounted, but it seemed to me that we were doomed. A pause. I helped all I could. He went on to explain how he'd taken hold of other men around him who seemed to, at that instant, be losing their heads, how he'd gathered their hands and said, with a solemnity, let us pray, gentlemen, and that they prayed. Then he said, simply, the ship went down. The more gruesome details of the chaos he cared not to dwell on, and as the ship stood on its end, stern high, he said, he'd fallen, striking his head on some unidentified object. Edith was still in her chair, face white, taken over by the story as if being covered by suffocating blankets one by one, because it was heartbreaking, of course, to imagine those final moments on Titanic, but also because William's dead? Well, he was dead, and he had been for almost two months. I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is episode four, The Ship in Dreams, Titanic and the Supernatural. October, guys. I live in Texas, where we break out our sweaters when it hits about 72 degrees, but then toss them back with great frustration, inevitably back into the drawer a few days later. But we can still enjoy spooky season and in the spirit, pardon the pun, of chills in the spine and goosebumps and what ifs and that autumnal sense of the supernatural. I'm very excited about this episode. It was a doozy to put together. It was fun. If you're a student of Titanic, if you're someone who is already quite steeped in it, then you might have thought I'd begin this particular episode with an excerpt from a novella called Futility, written by a man named Morgan Robertson in 1898. But if you have no idea what this is, fair enough, let me explain. It's the tale of a British liner, a huge one, named the Titan, a ship that is the last word in maritime technology, a ship that sinks in the North Atlantic after hitting an iceberg. And it doesn't have enough, you guessed it, lifeboats. This was written 14 years before Titanic sailed, but in 1912, after Titanic sank, the book was rebranded with the melodramatic title, The Wreck of the Titan, or 
futility because it became suddenly involved in this swell of claims of precognition, of tragedy and mass casualty. And ever since, it's been held up as this beacon for cultural history of the disaster, this tease of the supernatural with a literary bent. Scholars use it all the time, often to open this conversation about Titanic and the paranormal. But the thing is, we know it was revised in 1912, rebranded to capitalize on the similarities with Titanic. Robertson, the author, he was unsurprisingly rumored to be clairvoyant. He wasn't. He denied it himself. So how did he come up with this story? How did he seem to anticipate what the advances in maritime technology might eventually be? Well, he was the son of a sea captain, and he himself served as a cabin boy on countless vessels, was also in the merchant service for 20 years, on the sea for over 20 years. <laughs> and he wrote another story about a submarine and its periscope, which at first glance also seems to involve precognition, but not really because by 1902, the U.S. Navy was using a periscope very similar to the one in his story. All this to say, one thing I learned from researching this episode is that 90% of claims of precognition around Titanic or any major historical event, even if they seem insane, more than coincidence, downright creepy sometimes, 90% of these actually can be explained once you examine the life of who had them or pinned them in that case, their life, their struggles, experiences, cultural influences, perhaps what they worried about, any and all of it. The dialogue around Titanic and the supernatural, the omens involving its fate, this dialogue started right after the sinking, right after. The utter disbelief at its destruction seemed to marry a very popular interest in the occult at the time. And that equation, kind of spooky, really. But again, 90% of the time, it's just going to get you coincidence or a hoax. But I'm really interested also in that other 10%, Full disclosure, I am one of those involved skeptics, as I like to put it, hard to convince of paranormal proof, but I am constantly on the lookout for it nonetheless. I'm always trying to convince my husband to stay at notoriously haunted hotels so that I can, I guess, tempt fate. He doesn't, he's not into that. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> In my opinion, futility the novel is just simply not part of that 10%. The stuff that might, just might be real. Some of what I share today is in that 10% though, trust me. And I also want to talk about why just as human beings, people in 1912 sought out in droves psychic narratives around Titanic. Not only was it a heyday for spiritualism, seances, mediums, fortune tellers, and we'll discuss all of that, 
But it was also a time, as I've spoken about here already, of gender conflict. The type of a wealthy male industrial magnate who had perished on Titanic, Astor, Guggenheim, the railroad titan Charles Hayes, it's a long list. They'd invested in this sense of impenetrable possibility through technology. And in the icy waters of April 15th, 1912, Titanic lost beneath the sea. I think some people needed premonitions to explain what had happened in lieu of admitting human and even in this case, male failure. So I just started reading a new book by William Hazelgrove called 160 Minutes, The Race to Save the RMS Titanic. And it tracks the network of wireless operators involved in the rescue. And I'm excited to do an episode on those guys soon. But Hazelgrove sets up the whole book with this crucial distinction that pulled me in when I cracked it open. Quote, Titanic's fate was not preordained. It was ordained by the failings of men in critical moments. But it's certainly not all about gender or power or some kind of ego failure. It's also just about grief and about collective grief. To share premonitions was to cope. In April 1912, stories started immediately. For example, about those who had, quote, just missed the ship. Those who claimed they'd considered taking Titanic but chose not to, as not to fly in the face of God in terms of its growing reputation as unsinkable. In 1988, George Behe actually compiled the majority of the accounts that had accumulated over the years into a book called Titanic, Psychic Forewarnings of a Tragedy, which does a great job, even reading through over 30 years later, of categorizing alleged premonitions. He actually opens this work with counting up what he terms that just mystic club, 3,500 Americans, 2,900 Britons, and 476 others scattered all around the world, all claiming to have missed a ship that would never have held them all at once. He even catalogs all the instances of forewarnings into five categories. One, curious coincidences. Two, mistaken accounts or hoaxes. Three, the ones he deems possible psychic phenomena. Four, the ones he considers probable psychic phenomena, which is interesting. And five, a category onto itself, anything to do with William Stead, which don't worry, we will return to his floating head, essentially, here shortly. I wish I had time to relay all the stories from Behe's book or to dissect this idea of possible versus probable in terms of believability. There are so many shades of gray, and each one of us is going to believe these stories at a different decibel, so to speak, according to our own beliefs and our own experiences. So the most productive way for me to get at all of this is to contextualize some of it the best that I can, plop it down into this historical narrative and the cultural history of Titanic and its legacy. And I want to divide it for my purposes into two types of phenomena. One, dreams and omens, which in my head are so similar to a dreamlike state. So 
they're very, they, I wanted to put those together. And then two, the more active participation in spiritualism, like the seance that would bring Stead seemingly back to this world. But to give credit where it is very much due, to be clear, I am using a lot of details from these accounts that I culled from Behe's book, and I highly recommend that you get cozy under a blanket one afternoon and just immerse yourself in these tales. So first, the dreams. Oh, the dreams. This idea that an impending tragedy can somehow break through the veil of dreamland and send warnings to those that are in tune to it, like a radio. And if you happen to be on a certain station, you might pick up some sort of disturbing future truth. Dreams ahead of disaster are something that's bewitched the American mind on and off for decades, associated with events like assassinations, 9-11, climate events. And probably for centuries, this has been a thing, but my research isn't extensive enough to speak to that. But dreams and premonitions have been highlighted a lot, for example, in the iconic TV shows and films about the supernatural, think Twilight Zone. And actually, in the late 1950s, there was an anthology program called One Step Beyond, and it was sort of a Twilight Zone, but supposedly more nonfiction. That show did an episode called The Night of April 14th. And when I watched it, it's on YouTube, by the way, so much is on YouTube, it's amazing. I felt this crazy kind of synchronicity, this through line of Titanic imagery all the way through the 20th century. And now, of course, into the 21st, its campiness made me feel that. And I highly recommend going to watch it. We're still interested in all the same mysteries as people were then and in the 1950s and 60s. And One Step Beyond was hosted by John Newland, who, according to the show description was, quote, your guide to the supernatural. Newland presented paranormal events that seemingly defied logical explanation in this foreboding but fatherly tone. And in this case, in this episode, in front of a bookshelf with, you guessed it, a copy of Futility on it. The show claimed to be based on human record, but as a general rule, the incidents depicted were closer to urban legends than anything. So in the Titanic one, this woman who is four days from her honeymoon has a dream of drowning, being surrounded by water and ice, of losing her husband in this sea of chaos. The couple here, who of course end up on board Titanic a few days later, is fictional, but the husband, Eric, says something during one of his wife's dreams. He says, quote, you don't believe what you see in your sleep, not unless you're a gypsy. But when the ship starts to sink, when they say goodbye at the lifeboats, well, he begins to repent pretty quickly for making fun of her hysterics. Now I want to share some stories. Jock Hume who had worked as a violinist for White Star Ships for a while, was aboard the Titanic sister ship, the Olympic, in 1911 when she collided with the British cruiser Hawk. 
And he went home to Dumfries, Scotland during this hiatus time when the Olympic was being repaired. His mother begged him not to go back to sea at this point. One of his friends who survived the sinking said his mother had a dream that showed no good would come of him going back out to sea. But he boarded Titanic, and the band on board was lost to a man. A woman named Edwina Trout was British. She was in her 20s. She'd been to America before, but prior to another trip abroad on Titanic, she said she had a dream that someone had tapped her on the shoulder, somehow seemingly in mid-conversation, a conversation that ended with, strangely, the phrase, and it was the largest ship in the world. His name is lost to history, but a young Irish farmer from Athenry is said to have booked on Titanic to immigrate to America, which he was certainly excited about, until his mother dreamt three nights in succession a startlingly vivid dream that the ship went down. She saw it sinking mid-ocean with everybody on board, and he canceled his crossing. W. Ward had worked as a steward for most of his life on American liners. He'd been shipwrecked five times. No joke. Once spending two days in an open boat out on the water before being finally rescued. He lived by 1912 in Southampton with his wife and young son, Jackie. Couldn't find a verifiable age, but from what I read, seems like Jackie was about maybe five years old. And he had just started working with the White Star Line. One day, his son looked at him and told him not to go on Titanic because, quote, it was going to roll over. And when word of the sinking reached South Southampton, the family were sure he'd been lost until little Jackie had, in quick order, three dreams of him with his father and mother going to the moving pictures. Sure enough... On April 19th, a cable arrived. His dad had made it. Patrick O'Keefe was a young Irish immigrant, and the night before sailing in his hotel, he had a dream that the ship was going down in the middle of the perilous sea. Still, he boarded it, and the night of the sinking, he stayed on the ship until the sea rolled over the decks, and he jumped, swimming to an overturned boat. He ended up on the collapsible with Officer Lightoller, if you remember us talking about that. The collapsible where a lot of men and one woman balanced by centimeters and inches to keep the planks above water all night. O'Keefe wrote all this down in a letter to his father after the sinking. One possible explanation for the cluster of dreams reported about Titanic and impending doom is that historically something termed maiden voyage phobia was a very real thing, a superstition that perhaps being on the ship's first sojourn across the sea wasn't ideal. Scholars typically credit the coal strike that had just so recently occurred in England for Titanic's low capacity on its first and only voyage, but Honestly, after reading so much about this phobia, this maiden voyage phobia, I now do wonder if it had something to do with all the empty cabins. George Vanderbilt, and just so you know, he is the Vanderbilt that built the Biltmore Estate. 
Side note, that's one of my favorite places in the world to visit. He and his wife, Edith, were meant to be on Titanic, but her mother insisted so fervently that being on its mated voyage would be bad luck that they instead took the Olympic, which left on April 3rd. Their footman kept his ticket on Titanic, though, and was lost. And some accounts I read said he he remained on Titanic because some of their luggage was going to end up on Titanic and couldn't be changed. But then another account I read that wasn't the case and their luggage was on Olympic. So I'm not exactly sure about that one. Irish immigrant Edward Ryan planned to come to America to work as an engineer. When he told his mother he planned to sail on Titanic, she told him it was ill-advised. As you never know, quote, what may happen to a new ship. He went anyway, but managed to survive the sinking by hoisting over its side and shimmying down a rope into a lifeboat. He was one of very few third-class men to survive. Omens are hard to parse out, hard to analyze, because back then it was just known that ocean voyages could be dangerous. Death was a lot closer in travel than it is now. We're fortunate in that way. Just a few decades prior to this, in you know, back into the 19th century a bit, wasn't out of the ordinary for sea vessels to toss, turn, run aground, go missing, you name it. Precautions heading into a large ocean voyage, particularly if you were first class, first class and owned a lot of assets, had a lot of money, this wasn't out of the ordinary. And these precautions didn't necessarily mean precognition. And keep in mind, these new ships were the biggest they'd ever been. Even officers like Officer Wild on Titanic expressed unease. Wild famously spoke and wrote of his anxiety about boarding Titanic. So if you have a big metaphorical pot and you throw in this maiden voyage phobia, you throw in fears of ocean going in general, and all this hoopla about Titanic's almost frightening size and scale, the news articles, it's not surprising people were on edge. There's this infamous story uh, about when people in Queenstown were headed out to Titanic on the tender on the boat that brought them to the ship, which obviously couldn't come all the way into the dock because it was so huge. They were on this tender and Queenstown was the last stop before obviously the trip across the wide open Atlantic. And some of the passengers boarding at Queenstown looked up as they approached the ship and saw a man with his face covered in coal peeking out from the fourth funnel of the ship. The fourth funnel was not connected to the furnaces. It was just used for ventilation, but these passengers didn't know that. They essentially thought they were seeing some sort of fireproof zombie, ghost, an ominous illusion even, but it was just a stoker who had climbed up to sightsee to see the people boarding the ship at Queenstown. Richard Henry Rouse was a bricklayer in Sittingbourne, England. Rouse wanted to go ahead to America to set up for a move, get settled, leaving behind for the time being his wife Charity and their eight-year-old daughter Gladys. He went alone in Titanic's third class. On April 4th, he took his family to Southampton ahead of the trip by train to see the ship 
and Charity, his wife, looking up at it, exclaimed, That ship is too big. I have a bad feeling it will never reach America. He went anyway, and on April 12th, Charity received a postcard from Cherbourg or Queenstown, word that he was fine and the ship was wonderful. A few days later, the mother and daughter walked down to their corner shop to the news that the ship had sunk. Gladys recalled the details her whole life, how she sobbed on the street yelling, Daddy's on that ship. John Phillips, chief Marconi operator on board Titanic, went home to visit his family in Surrey before he sailed, and while talking to a good friend, confessed rather suddenly, as the friend remembers it, that he had a great fear building of icebergs, and that he would rather be on smaller vessel than on these big ocean liners. Phillips celebrated his 25th birthday on board Titanic on April 11th, then died four days later after transmitting wireless calls, literally until the ship's power went out a final time. Anna Ward, who was the maid of first-class passenger Charlotte Cardeza, a Philadelphia millionaireess, and remember, she's the one who threw Bruce Ismay under the bus and very incorrectly claimed he'd escaped on the first lifeboat. Uh, Ward sailed with Cardeza many times before, but had not wanted to go on this particular trip. Uh, She told her family that she developed a sudden and odd fear of crossing the ocean at this point. Her family persuaded her to keep the employment, though. Luckily, she and Charlotte did make it into a lifeboat. Likewise, Caroline Indress, a trained nurse who traveled with John Jacob Astor and his young pregnant wife, Madeline, her family said she, quote, dreaded this last trip, even after having traveled quite a bit in her life. She also luckily made it off in a lifeboat. Archibald Butt was the military aide to President Taft. He was also close to Theodore Roosevelt. And what you should know is that in early 1912, the Republican Party was divided between these men, Roosevelt and Taft, as to who they would choose as their candidate. This weighed on Butt so much that it enticed him, at the urging of his doctor as well, to take a restive trip. So he decided to go to Rome in March with his roommate, Frank Millet, the famous artist. And side note, whole episode coming on them that I am very excited about. They're some of my favorite passengers to research. In February, he wrote to his sister that she should know where all his papers were in storage. And that if, quote, the old ship goes down, you will find my affairs in shipshape condition. His friends said he told them he'd never had such a sense of impending doom. He even canceled the trip at one point. He had his will made, and it was witnessed by Secret Service members who said that he seemed to have an uneasy feeling. Another friend took a walk with him on the White House grounds shortly before the trip, And he said that Butt had a strange feeling that he was to be at the center of some great tragedy. But right before leaving Rome and sailing back on Titanic, Butt had dinner at the home of Baron Carli Alotti, Italian minister to Mexico. And the Baron recalled that Butt spoke of his trip going pleasantly. He was now ready to get home where he would be needed. He called Titanic unsinkable at this sitting. 
The omens were not just confined to those who sailed. In March 1912, a woman named Helen Bell was reading the Daily Mirror over breakfast and noticed an article about the anticipation of Titanic heading to Southampton to sail. And she says as she read it, a picture came to her mind showing a night scene with jagged and pointed rocks with the hull of a boat standing up out of the water. And she heard a voice clearly that said, this will be on its first voyage. Friends asked her later why she never said anything at the time. And she replied, where is the paper that would have printed it? And while we're on the subject of people who were not even on the ship, try this story on for size. 23 years later, a young British sailor, just out of apprenticeship, sailed April 15th, 1935, on the tramp steamer Titanian. He claims at the time he was reading the book Futility in his cabin. Of all books, that book, and that out in the North Atlantic, a sense of dread overtook him. He thought about the book, about where he was, and that he rang the bell on the ship and cried for an engine to stop for no reason but his own dread, so overtaken with panic that his body would allow him to do nothing else but that. And as the ship came to a halt, it supposedly stopped indeed right under the view of a huge iceberg. And the time was 11.40 p.m., There were tales that it sunk at exactly the same spot as Titanic did, but the wreck site coordinates are in question. This part is not verified. And it's also very possible that Reeves just spotted ice, and that's why he rang the bell, and that maybe he crafted this narrative later. Ice is very common in this area of the North Atlantic in April. Surviving crew from Titanic Frank Prentice I've heard him in interviews say, you could smell ice. I knew it because you can smell it. A keenness in the air. There's something about ice that you can smell. Still, all of this is ferociously creepy though, right? For me, some of the most chilling stories involve a sort of stopped clock narrative where someone related to someone on board senses the terror from afar or seems to brush elbows with the event, even though they're thousands of miles away. Isidore Strauss's favorite horse, Bess, was just six years old and kept on a comfortable farm while the Strausses, and remember Isidore and Ida were the couple that owned Macy's department store. They're also the couple, they're in the 97 movie as the couple that stays together, the older couple in the bed at the end. Um, and there is the the true story of Ida Strauss staying on board with Isidore because she didn't want to leave him. But this horse, Bess, she was discovered dead on the morning of April 15th, 1912, in her stable. No one ever figured out what killed her. The most supernatural of interpretations was that she died at the instant her beloved owner did, so far out to the east in that ocean. Another stopped clock sort of example is something that happened years later. Frank Bustard, a former former official of the White Star Line, who left the company in 1934 to form his own, 
brought some of the old furniture from White Star with him, including a walnut wardrobe that had belonged to Bruce Ismay. Inside its door was an oval mirror, and Bustard hung the mirror in his private office. I have no idea if this was something he did out of spite, could have been some sort of passive-aggressive move, I'm not sure. On Sunday, October 17th, 1937, Ismay passed away, and the next morning, when Bustard got to his office, the mirror was broken on the floor. Keep that story in mind for something later as well. W. Rex Soudan, um, he was the captain in charge of a Salvation Army Corps in the town of Kirkendbright, Scotland. And on the night of April 14th, 1912, so we're back to 1912, he was called in because one of the orphans there, a little girl named Jessie, and she had been ill, I'm supposing, because she was apparently very near death, sadly. At 11 p.m., Jessie sat upright in her bed and said, Hold my hand, Captain. I am so afraid. Can't you see that big ship sinking in the water? He comforted her by saying, obviously, it was a bad dream or something, but she insisted it wasn't, said she saw so many people drowning, and then that, quote, someone called Wally is playing a fiddle and coming to you. She lapsed into a coma, but as Soudan sat there, he had the distinct feeling that someone passed by the door, then entered the room. The little girl opened her eyes once more, said her mother had come to get her, and died peacefully. He concluded that it must have been the mother's spirit he felt coming to collect the child. Of course, he and the world would soon learn that Titanic music musician Wallace Hartley, perhaps known to some as Wally, known in fact to Salden as a child when they were boys, died at sea on Titanic. Some tales I came across are not omens at all, but just in hindsight, heartbreaking examples of logical fears. Emil Tausig, a president of West Disinfecting Company of New York, wrote a series of letters in 1908 to the U.S. Steamship Inspection Service, urging them to increase the number of boats regulated to prevent a major disaster. He wrote, Just as sure as you are living, and just as sure as there is a sun above us, this thing will come to pass sooner or later. Four years later, he boarded Titanic with his wife and daughter, and was never seen again after he managed to get them into one of the too few lifeboats. Charles Hayes, president of the Canadian Grand Trunk Railroad, he was rumored to have been heard on board Titanic at dinner, saying that the time would soon come that the greatest and most appalling of all sea disasters would happen because these companies like White Star were devoting their attention to luxury and size. Of course, it it should be noted that Hayes went to England for a director's meeting where he proposed to spend the company's way out of bankruptcy, at least in part by building a chain of luxury hotels across Canada. Hayes, unfortunately, though, did die on Titanic. So I came across a video on YouTube featuring some of the longest living survivors. It's this grainy footage from the 80s and 90s. There's lots of them on YouTube. If you're interested in this sort of thing, I recommend poking around. It's amazing to watch these old clips. 
But this one opens with Eva Hart, who was just seven years old when she stepped into a Titanic lifeboat and watched as her father's face faded from view. It shows her at a seance in the 1980s when she's now an elderly woman. And she's hoping to contact him so many, many years later. Eva spoke her whole life about her mother's premonitions of danger. Eva recounts how her mother, Esther, was worried nonstop before they traveled in 1912. That she realized, oh, now I know why I'm frightened once they learned that Titanic was the ship they'd be traveling on. How Esther had cried out that calling something unsinkable was quote, flying in the face of God. Eva claims while boarding, her mother asked her father one more time that they please not go, but Benjamin Hart insisted. And so Esther got on, but devised a plan that she would not sleep at night, only during the day. And she did it. She stayed up alert and dressed every night. The hearts were in second class, and Eva recalls her father buying her toys on board, playing with the other children with her, entertaining her while her mother slept in the daytime hours, and then him looking down at them as that lifeboat was being lowered, and she never saw him again. Seances weren't and aren't as rare as you might think. They're not as rare as I thought until I did some of this research. Modern spiritualism has its roots in European theology, notably in the works of an 18th century scientist and philosopher named Emanuel Swedenborg, who wrote a book about the afterlife called, quite appropriately, Heaven and Hell. He was not the only one, certainly, but he notably claimed to visit the spirit world, And his works influenced everyone from William Blake to Robert Frost to Johnny Appleseed. In America, there is also a notable figure in Andrew Jackson Davis, who grew up along the Hudson River in Poughkeepsie in the mid-19th century. He heard voices and claimed to be clairvoyant. He also claimed in 1844 to have this experience where he entered a trance and then interacted in a realm with the likes of Swedenborg as well as ancient Greek physicians. He would go on to write the books that built the foundation of American spiritualism, which also made its way to Britain, I should say. And in 1847, he predicted that it wouldn't be long before there was a moment where we basically had proof of the afterlife, that we were on the sort of metaphorical doorstep of this moment. And that proof, in many people's minds, arrived in the form of a set of sisters from Hydesville, New York. In March of 1848, the Fox family said that they began hearing strange rapping noises in the small cottage they occupied while building a new home nearby. The two youngest girls, Maggie, 15, and Kate, just 11 years old, began talking to, they claimed, some unknown entity in the home who they named Mr. Splitfoot, a nickname for the devil. An older brother came to town to help and devised an alphabet system to communicate with whatever it was, basically going through the alphabet until the creature rapped back 
to recognize a letter. It took forever, but it allowed this entity to talk to them. It's a very long story, but the entity eventually confessed to the foxes that he was the spirit of a Jewish peddler, they said, who'd been robbed and murdered by the cottage's previous occupant. Writer Arthur Conan Doyle, yes, Arthur Conan Doyle, as in Sherlock Holmes, wrote about the incident and claimed that some neighbors actually dug up the cellar and indeed found bones. But none of this has ever really been verified, I should say. And the peddler has never been positively identified as a real person. But what's important in a historical context is that the Fox sisters monetized this situation. Their whole family did. They moved to Rochester and swore that the spirit, a man named Charles, followed them. In November of 1849, they held a public demonstration at the Corinthian Hall, the first of its kind before a paying audience. Over the course of their career as psychic mediums in this sense, they were apparently examined by a group of citizens, examined for fraud, I mean, and later by loads of experts, some of whom realized pretty quickly that these girls could be making the noises with their joints and their feet. It reminded me of the story from the great recent BBC podcast, The Battersea Poltergeist, where a teenage girl in London in the 1950s who claimed to be communicating with someone long dead was also examined physically, suspected of producing wrappings and noises and fabricating the other half of a conversation with the dead. I highly recommend that podcast, by the way. It's hosted by Danny Robbins. The Fox sisters were never found out in the moment, so to speak, and they would go on to hold seances for huge groups of people, thus setting off a trend that would affect the Titanic tragedy directly. To note, later in life, at least one of the sisters submitted a confession, admitted that they'd made the wrappings themselves, and a neighbor confessed to helping as well. The sisters actually renounced spiritualism quite adamantly later in life. But the wheels were in motion, and there was no stopping them. In Britain in the Victorian period, even the elite were entranced by the thrill of the ghost world, became drawn into seances and the employment of mediums, some of whom became quite well known, like Florence Cook, who acted as a 17th century pirate's daughter during her sessions and was known to, I kid you not, levitate and shed her clothing while doing so. William Stead was born in 1849. Just as the Fox sisters took hold of hungry imaginations, he was the son of a reverend, and his mother came from a Yorkshire farming family. As a boy, he read poetry and by all accounts knew from an early age he wanted to make a difference, be an activist, help others. He began writing as a reporter for a paper called the Northern Echo at age 20. He would have six children with Emma Lucy Wilson. In September of 1880, they moved to London so he could serve as assistant editor of the Pall Mall Gazette, a liberal publication, where he later became full editor. 
He was known as the Napoleon of newsmen, credited with the birth of what we term a new journalism that brought crucial topics to the masses by way of accessible prose, but also by making reprints of articles and papers cheap and available as pamphlets to you know dispense to people. He was known for tackling issues that outraged but also engaged people. Social issues, investigative journalism, here are some of its roots. His most known work was 1885's The Maid of Modern Babylon. This is what would make him famous, notorious, loved by some, hated by others, you name it. He had been approached by an anti-vice campaigner to help raise public awareness about the Criminal Law Amendment Act. This was intended to combat child prostitution and raise the age of consent. So he went headfirst into London's seedy underbelly to investigate, interviewing pimps, rescue workers, jail workers, even sent female staffers in posing as prostitutes. It was very frank sexual content for Victorian England, to put it mildly. There were headlines like the violation of virgins, the confessions of a brothel keeper, how girls were bought and ruined. Parliament passed the Criminal Law Amendment Act, the CLA, and it became known as Stead's Law because of his involvement through this investigative journalism. And ironically, he became a victim of Stead's law himself. So during the process of investigating these articles, he had been involved in the purchase of a girl named Lily from her mother. Now, Lily actually ended up safe and being cared for, but the public didn't know that. They didn't realize that Stead had been involved in this to help the girl and also to shed light on the horrible things that were going on. He was arraigned on charges of abduction and served two years in prison in 1885. Also, unfortunately, the Criminal Law Amendment Act had a last-minute addition, making the act of gross indecency between men illegal, effectively criminalizing homosexuality in Great Britain for the next 72 years. Stead was on record, though, advocating against it, against the addition of that to the act. And he supported writer Oscar Wilde when Wilde had a run-in with this particular law. Stead was an advocate for peace. He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1903. He was a pacifist at a time of brewing war and arms-building races. He supported women's rights at a time when not a lot of men did. But to be frank, there's also a story I ran across involving a women's rights activist named Annie Kenny, who said as a woman, she often had to be careful in Stead's office because he was prone to try and kiss her. Gray areas. <laughs> uh, but a friend described him as someone who, quote, with a pen touched with fire about the things that really mattered. And another said he was, quote, the most lovable man he had something of the child about him, which drew and endeared. And as a historian, I am here to provide you information and to try to contextualize, but there's certainly no way that I would be able to make any definitive statement about Stead's character. Of course not. 
1886, he'd written a story called How the Mail Steamer Went Down in the Mid-Atlantic by a survivor. He did. In which a liner goes down without enough boats. Honestly, the more I read about the anxieties related to the lack of lifeboats out on the Atlantic, the less I buy that those conversations didn't happen between Thomas Andrews or Bruce Ismay or the White Starline and Harlan and Wolf in 1911, conversations about lifeboats. But that just has to be more follow-up for another day. In 1890, Stead left daily journalism and founded the Review of Reviews. And it was also in this period that he entered the world of spiritualism definitively, editing a periodical called Borderlands, which printed allegedly true cases of apparitions, hauntings, clairvoyance, premonitions. Not unlike today, really, if you think about it, if you think about podcasts that ask for listener stories of the supernatural, that share them and dissect them, and in some cases, in a warranted way, give them credence or historicize them. There's one podcast I listen to called Real Life Ghost Stories that does does this out of the UK, and I highly recommend it. Around this time, Stead also founded Julia's Bureau, devoted to the practice of communicating with people who had passed on, named for a dead friend of Stead's, Julia Ames, who he believed was his guide to the other side. And through her, he claimed to master automatic writing, which is exactly what it sounds like. A person writes under the control of a spirit, and what comes out is considered a message from the beyond. Edith Harper, the devoted friend and secretary, who would soon interact with his projection, as well as her mother Adela, were members, as was Stead's daughter Estelle. Seances were run by mediums. Lights would usually be put out. Sometimes they'd use a cabinet with doors and curtains so that the medium wasn't visible. But as you can imagine, this situation often opened up the chance for fraud, let's say. <laughs> And some fraudulent mediums also covered themselves in clothes or sheets and circulated around a room. This leads me to really wonder, honestly, how gullible some people were at this time, how desperate to communicate with loved ones that they were, which that part I understand. Wrappings as communication could easily be faked, and a lot of people knew this, and we saw this with the Fox sisters. And there was also, to note, fraudulent photography at the time, using double exposure, where the photographer would use plates with photos already on them, and then put another ghostly one on top. But there were many people who approached this phenomenon with an almost academic mindset. People like Stead believed spiritualism could coexist, not only with Christianity, but also with intellectualism. In 1909, he wrote a book that was a series of messages from Julia. And he said, quote, sitting alone with a tranquil mind, I consciously placed my right hand with a pin held the ordinary way at the disposal of Julia and watched with keen and skeptical interest to see what it would write. In the months and years leading up to Stead's voyage on Titanic, and this is one of the craziest aspects of his life to me, he was absolutely no stranger to premonitions about himself. In January of 1892, a palm reader read anonymous palms for an issue of Pearson's magazine, 
And one of them was Stead's. And this person predicted he would die at age 63. He died at age 62. Stead would periodically tell his friends of a premonition he had himself, a vision of a mob, of dying in a throng. Now, in 1900, Stead was roughed up by a group of men in London. Um, and it was about his pacifist views, which they didn't like. And perhaps understandably, that was also a source of these fears for him. In 1906, a Paris clairvoyant told Stead to fear the water, but this was a very common warning from clairvoyants at the time. In 1911, Count Louis Hammond, a palmist known as Chiero, I think I'm pronouncing that right, but really he had a completely different real name. It was William John Warner. So he told Stead that his fate would be in the water as well. But he talked about this very publicly after Titanic, so that one's in question. In September of 1911, Stead went to a palmist named W. de Kerlor. I'm going to say Kerlor. I think that's right. He told Stead that his life would end violently and in public, that he saw a huge black ship, but only half of it. Later, he had a dream related to Stead, one with bodies in the water. He told Stead, who replied, quote, Oh, yes. Well, you are a very gloomy prophet. Goodbye. But Kerlor even sent more warnings by way of Stead's secretary. Most bizarre. There was a seance involving the apparition of Catherine the Great, where an odd crucifix appeared, one that supposedly belonged to Catherine herself. It was ebony and silver, three inches long, with a skull and crossbones at the bottom and a silver rose at the intersection of the arms. Stead apparently came in possession of it, but was told by another medium it had very negative energy. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> and Stead fell into a deep depression. He tried to have it demagnetized by someone who worked in magic. I don't know what that person's job description would be. And he felt better, he said, afterwards, but supposedly a couple of his friends became ill after being around it. In January of 1912, he had lunch with a friend who was a Russian correspondent to the Daily Telegraph and told him that I, I have it now, he meant the cross, and he was curious to see whether any mischief would befall him. It's not known if it was real it's not known if he carried this crucifix on to Titanic. He boarded Titanic because he was on his way to New York to give a talk on universal peace at the Men and Religion Forward Movement Congress at Carnegie Hall, April 21st, 1912. In a final letter posted from Queenstown, he seemed unmoved by all of these premonitions and said, quote, this ship as is as firm as a rock, and the sea is like a mill pond. On board Titanic on the evening of April 12th, Stead supposedly sat with 12 other men in the first class smoking room, among them Fred Seward, one of the men. It's how we have part of this account. And as midnight approached, the conversation turned to ghost stories and the supernatural, and he volunteered to tell a story, Stead did. 
And supposedly he said that to prove he was not superstitious, he would start the story at midnight and continue it into the next day, the 13th. It concerned the finding of a mummy case in an Egyptian tomb, one with an inscription warning anyone that repeated the story in the hieroglyphics on it would meet a violent death. Seward later said it was a story he'd never tell, just to be safe. But this story became the basis of rumors, and I'm sure if you are a Titanic person who has listened to the podcasts about the conspiracy theories, or if you've read about the conspiracy theories, this report that there was a mummy on board and that the mummy's curse sunk the ship. But scholars, (laughs) so this is the root of it, is what I'm saying, the story is. But scholars have pretty much proven this is false. At the end, in the early morning hours of April 15th, some reports have Stead calmly reading a book in the first-class smoking room as the ship is sinking. One report said it was the Bible. Some say he was last seen on deck in prayer. One report reported seeing him calmly holding the men back who were trying to take women's places in some of the boats near the end. Given all the warnings... Given his work in the realm of spiritualism, good gracious, I you have to believe those final hours for him were of a very specific type of reckoning. He had to be wondering if he would be able to come back like his friend Julia. And for many, he did exactly that. One of his spiritualist friends, Felicia Scathard, was in Athens, Greece, a few days after the sinking, and claims she felt suddenly that he was in the room. Edith Harper's mom, Adela, claims also to have seen a vision of him on April 17th. In the two weeks following the sinking, a lot of American spiritualists claim to have visited with him. He was literally all over the country and all over the world, apparently. One seance in London, April 24th, with an unnamed medium. Stead appeared and said he was, quote, so near to you, it hurts. The people in this seance claimed his that he said his death was numbing, easy, that he remembers near my God to thee, the hymn ringing in his ears, that he said that he was the one who suggested the band play it, and that then the medium was actually controlled by W.T. Braley, a member of Titanic's band. The medium ended the session by claiming to be controlled by Captain Smith himself, who said that Stead was the first to come to him on the other side. This particular story, I have a lot of problems with. I don't think that's shocking. Reverend Charles W. Tweedale, who was also a strong proponent of spiritualism, kept a journal of supernatural phenomenon And he was an acquaintance of Stead's and planned actually to hold a seance with him when Stead returned from America with the medium Wright, who we'll talk about here in a moment. On April 15th, in another stopped clock kind of narrative, Tweedale reported loud knocks in his home, heavy footsteps, reported that his wife actually saw in her kitchen a man with thick eyebrows and a beard wearing a tweed suit. The family claims they heard crying, moaning. And when his wife, when Tweedale's wife was shown a picture of Stead, she identified him as the man she'd seen in the kitchen. To be fair, it looks as though Tweedale might have revised his journal entries from that day 
after the fact. Dr. John S. King, a Toronto physician and president of the Canadian Society of Psychical Research, reported receiving over 70 messages from Stead. So remember my promise of that 10%, that 10% that Behe claims in his book is probable phenomenon? Well, here we go. Seances with a medium named Etta Wright, and I am pronouncing it right. It does have a D in it. It is W-R-I-E-D-T. I am so sorry if I am mispronouncing that. Someone definitely let me know if you know. So she had actually planned to come back to England with Stead after his trip to New York. And her seances seemed to fall, at least for some, into that 10% category, depending on how open you are to what these seances could actually produce. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle called Wright the best direct voice medium in the world. In May and June of 1912, in a room with her, there were supposedly long conversations between Stead and his daughter, very personal dialogue, some claims of believable physical manifestation here too, as we've also mentioned, his head appearing, his body appearing. At one in Wimbledon, Vice Admiral Usborne Moore claims he saw and heard a, quote, shade of Stead. Later that same evening, seven witnesses saw a trumpet seance in which a megaphone was used to amplify the voice. Estelle said, quote, three weeks after the Titanic disaster, I saw my father's head and shoulders as plainly as I saw them when we last met on Earth. A floating head. Moore gave this account of witnessing a super personal interchange between father and daughter at one point, called it painful and realistic to watch including instructions on disposing of private papers and agitated cries of, oh my God. Another seance with Wright 10 days later resulted in one diplomat claiming he saw a light appear that turned into Stead, who said he was there to provide, quote, fresh proof of the afterlife. And on May 29th, members of Julia's Bureau had dinner at Cambridge House, Wimbledon, Stead's home. And his chair at the head of the table was occupied by a large potted marguerite bush, a plant. Some of its blossoms began to move on their own. And the people in attendance, including the Harpers and Estelle, they asked him to move the chair, which he then turned, they said, and then proceeded to make violent wrappings to shake the windows, to rattle things, continue to move this plant more. If you can imagine this plant at a head of a table acting out. Adela Harper yelled, that's right, chief, because she recalled he'd told her that when he came back, he'd stomp around and there'd be no mistaking it was him. A week and a half later is when Edith Harper, Adela's daughter, claims she heard the tale of the sinking from him and that he said that Archibald Butt was threatening to shoot a gun. Now, early stories, early news stories had Butt with the revolver. These were very dramatized accounts that he had been threatening to shoot men who weren't behaving, but this was never substantiated. It was probably just media hoopla. Stead knew Millet, who was traveling with Butt, so it is possible they were together at the end, but we would have no way of knowing what actually transpired. All this shows that the medium might have been influenced by the news at the time. Definitely, obviously possible. The palm reader, De Kerlor, 
cannot handle that name. It's K-E-R-L-O-R. So he's the one that warns dead so many times heading into Titanic. He came to one of these seances, and he claims that Stead said in his signature voice, quote, forgive me for not having taken heed of your predictions. So I'd be remiss if I didn't mention an experiment involving the manifesting of ghosts from a lot more recently. It kind of puts situations like that potentially into light. So the experiment was conducted in the 70s, and it was done by a Toronto Parapsychological Research Society. Their goals were to create a fictional character and then attempt to communicate with it through a seance to prove that they could essentially create a ghost. The character created and agreed upon was named Philip Aylesford, and his fictional history coincided with some actual events. And he was born, according to their biography they wrote, in 1624 in England. He had a military career, was knighted at age 16. He was involved in the English Civil War. Philip was unhappily married to a woman named Dorothea, they said, and later fell in love with a girl who was accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake. It's a very dramatic life that they created for Philip. The group was seated around a table with initial seances yielding no contact, no communication, and no phenomenon. And then they changed test conditions by dimming the lights and changing the environment to mimic a more traditional seance. Participants began feeling a presence, table vibrations, breezes, unexplained echoes, and rapping sounds which matched responses to questions about Philip's life. At one point, the table tilted on a single leg, and at other times, furniture would move around. Although audio, video, and witness accounts document the paranormal here, Philip never actually appeared to participants, so that's important to note. A sort of collective hallucination or willing into reality might have been what happened in the wake of Stead's daughter's grief. She claims he communicated in person after death with her so much that he wrote a posthumous book. And that book is The Blue Island, published in 1922. So Estelle had been on a tour in the UK with her Shakespearean drama company in 1912 when the ship sank. And one person in that group was a man named Pardo Woodman. He sat down to tea with her right before the sinking and explained that he felt there would be a great sea disaster and that one of her loved ones would be on it. Five years later, that same man claims to have begun receiving automatic writing messages from Stead. He and Estelle would sit and work on them. And from that came the Blue Island, this book full of supposed communications from Stead from beyond the watery grave, called such because in his messages, he claims he and other survivors were transported to a Blue Island, some sort of afterlife station somewhere in the astral plane. Estelle seems to have believed it all, given her tone in the book, And that she noted things like Woodman would cross his T's and dot his I's the way that her father did when he was alive. There's an intro to the book by Arthur Conan Doyle, in which he admits that, quote, the clear expression and the happy knack of smiles were very characteristic of your father. In his communications here, Stead, and I use the word communications here loosely at this point, 
I think you probably understand why. But Stead says that after the sinking, hundreds of souls hovered over their floating bodies, and then they rose vertically into the air at a great speed. Quote, it was like walking from your own English winter gloom into the radiance of an Indian sky. And that, quote, we arrived feeling, in the sense, proud of ourselves. It was all lightness, brightness, everything as physical and quite as material in every way as the world we had just finished with. Our arrival was greeted with welcomes from old friends and relations who had been dear to each one of us in our earth life. So he describes life on the island with buildings and food and everyone working their jobs or having daily tasks. He creates this entire world. The more and more I read of the Blue Island, and guys, I read a lot of it. (laughs) I'm committed to this research. The more I read, the more I understood why academics don't mention this part of Stead's story. But if you look at it through the lens of a grieving daughter, one who undoubtedly grappled with losing a father who was so entrenched in these ideas of afterlife, it makes sense. She desperately needed and wanted him to come back to her. Thinking about this in terms of things we consume now, I I was thinking about all of the paranormal shows on the Discovery Network, for example. And there's one that I've even watched called Kindred Spirits that's quite interesting. But in these shows now, paranormal experts go into places that are supposedly haunted. But over the course of half an hour, the story becomes more about contacting a loved one or some sort of spirit that had unfinished business in a house. And it always ends up being kind of a therapy session more than anything. There's no proof of the paranormal, but there is always proof that someone that lives in that house or is in that building needs help with their grief in some way. It's so interesting. So Stead wasn't the only one touched by the seance experience. A year after the sinking, survivors Edith Brown, her married name would later be Heisman, and her mother were in Melbourne and taking a Sunday stroll when they noticed a sign for a meeting of spiritualists. When they came in, the medium asked the audience if anyone there was connected to a sinking because she had suddenly seen a ship sinking and could hear the screams in her head. They raised their hands, and when the meeting was over, the medium relayed a message to them, an automatic writing from TWS, Thomas William Solomon Brown, saying he'd, quote, entered a bright world and was happy and would come that night to kiss his daughter, Edith. That night, Edith woke up suddenly, convinced someone or something had just kissed her cheek. It is interesting that the medium pulled his name out of thin air, as the story goes, but there's always the chance that she knew the family from newspapers, from being aware of coverage of the sinking. The handwriting was, to Mrs. Brown and her daughter, a match, though, and the family remained for the rest of their lives, convinced that this interaction had been quite real. So the last little thing I want to touch on is fortune tellers. And just a few weeks ago, a friend of mine who teaches at the university level 
messaged me excitedly. She obviously knows this is Titanic is very much my thing. But she had a student write on a form, a kind of a get to know you form, that one of the most interesting things about him was that when he was abroad in Europe a couple of years ago, a fortune teller told him that she was quite certain in a past life he had been on the Titanic. And fortune tellers were super common in the early 20th century, and apparently, I think, super common still now. Probably very common for fortune tellers at the time was mentioning sea voyages to American tourists. These people would have had to cross the ocean to get there. They knew that and would have to head back at some point, obviously. And also keep in mind that often wealthier elite people at this time viewed being with a fortune teller as sort of slumming, kind of as kind of a twisted sense of entertainment. And that's important to remember in context. Dr. W.E. Minahan, a prominent physician and surgeon from Wisconsin, In 1907, he apparently visited a gypsy camp with his friends. A fortune teller said he would die while on a steamer on his second trip abroad. In February of 1911, one of his sisters named Mary visited a fortune teller, and that teller said that two of her family members would be involved in some sort of major misfortune. In the fall of 1911, Dr. Minahan went abroad with his wife and another sister, this one named Daisy. And no joke, he did arrange his personal affairs before he left and write out his will. But this wouldn't have been out of the ordinary for people going on long voyages. That was incredibly common. Daisy got appendicitis while in Europe, and so they couldn't travel any further. They booked on the Titanic to come home early. The doctor got his wife and sister into a lifeboat and said, quote, no matter what happens, be brave. That was the last time they saw him. There was the Fortune family traveling with their son and three daughters. They're adult children. Most of them were adult children, I believe. One of whom, Alice Fortune, perfect name, caught the eye of a man named William Sloper, who was also traveling abroad. One Sunday afternoon in January of 1912, as they sat on the terrace of the Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo, visiting Egypt was a big thing among American elite at the time, especially during the winter, in terms of, you know, a warmer climate. Alice noticed an Indian fortune teller and asked Sloper to go get him and bring him to her. Apparently, the fortune teller squatted down next to Alice and said, You are in danger every time you travel on the sea, for I see you adrift on the ocean in an open boat, and others will be lost. The rest of her group declined to have their palms read. Doesn't surprise me. In April, both groups ended up back in London, and Alice suggested Sloper move his reservation to take the Titanic so that they could all sail together. But weirdly, right before sailing at the Carlton Hotel, Alice said to him, I'm sorry you did that. Don't you remember what the fortune teller said last winter? Remember, they were flirting too, so some of this is maybe flirtatious exchange. Alice and Sloper both survived. But I'll tell you, interestingly, Sloper got on a lifeboat that night with the film star Dorothy Gibson, who he just spent the night 
wooing from everything that I've read. So apparently he was playing the field on board Titanic. On the rescue ship, though, Carpathia, on Carpathia, he knocked on the fortune's door. Alice's brother and father hadn't made it, but she and her sisters had. They didn't talk long. And Alice only really said, remember the fortune teller? Behe and other writers and historians have offered that the impossibility of Titanic sinking is what made a lot of these premonitions, these fortunes told, whatever it may be, so astounding. But as I read through them, I actually began to feel quite the opposite. I began to feel that with the insane amount of press coverage of the ship's size and luxury, of its invincibility, its supposed invincibility, I think these anxieties really took root in people's subconscious, and that can explain a lot. The human brain is a wild, wild wood. And the anxieties are still there. We are still obsessed with Titanic. And as we've discussed before, a lot of us remain convinced that she is shrouded in some sort of mystery. There was a woman named Doris Williams born in Ohio in September of 1913. She suffered her whole life from an intense fear of water. And she visited a spiritual counselor in 1960 in California who hypnotized her for a past life regression. Apparently while under, she told him she was a passenger named Blackwell who died on the Titanic. There was a man on Titanic named Stephen Blackwell And she named the shipping company he'd worked for, spoke of a marriage, of dreams of going to medical school, went on and on about how he'd injured his hands during the sinking before he passed away. In the end, though, it was discovered that this woman had written a letter to the Titanic Historical Society requesting information. And what's important to remember in that case is that there was really a fever, a cultural fever going on around A Night to Remember at this point. It had been published in the 50s. It had been turned into a movie in 1958. And there was a huge resurgence in the American mind about Titanic. Going back to the TV episode that I mentioned earlier, that would fit into this same time period. And I think that I I thought a lot about how to end this episode with some of the more recent claims about Titanic hauntings, supernatural activity. And there's no really easy way to segue except to say that it is something that continues to obsess a lot of people. And it must be something that is profitable for organizations to continue to shroud in this sense of mystery. I just the other day saw an ad from the Titanic artifact exhibition that is at the Luxor in Vegas, there was an Instagram ad. And I don't have it in front of me, but it was, so I'm not going to quote it directly. And and please forgive me if I misrepresent anything. But it was advertising ghost tours through the exhibition at the Luxor in Vegas. It's just so interesting to me. There also was very notably an episode of the show Ghost Adventures, which is on the Travel Channel, that examined the Titanic Museum in Branson, Missouri. I watched this episode, 
And in it, you have a team of investigators that go at night to an empty, the museum is empty at the time that they're investigating it. And over the course of several hours, pick up on what they think are valid EVPs, which are electronic voice phenomenon. They pick up on the sort of echoes of a ghost of a child that they claim. There's handprints that they find on windows. And there is this real sense that they truly believe that a child who drowned on the Titanic has somehow found his or her way to this museum attraction in Branson, Missouri, because some of the artifacts from the ship are at this museum. If you're interested in all of this, I recommend you watch that episode. And it's cheesy, it's campy, but so much of this stuff is. And I think if you're a Titanic person, if you're a Titanic researcher, even if you are one in the most academic sense, it's still so crucial to understand why people are involved in Titanic in that campy, cheesy way. Obviously, for a lot of people, an interest in the occult, in the paranormal in general is, as we've talked about in this episode, so tied in with thoughts of death, fears of death, uh, themes of grief. And I think that in terms of these ghost shows, in terms of anything about this related to Titanic, that's incredibly applicable. So I wanted to share a couple of stories from that Luxor in Vegas Titanic artifact exhibition that have circulated online. Obviously, none of these can be verified. It's impossible to verify something like this, but I wanted to share them. So this is it again, this is in Vegas at the Luxor where the artifacts that are to note from from the ocean floor, these are the artifacts that are from the ocean floor, ones that were brought up, the ones that were brought up from Titanic. And that's an entire conversation. There's two schools of thought in terms of what types of artifacts should be displayed, those that come up from the ocean versus the ones that just came off of, uh, you know, people that were on the ship or that were floating on the surface. There's an entire debate about extraction of artifacts, and we will talk about that in a future episode. So witnesses have claimed in Vegas to see lookout Frederick Fleet. He was the one up in the crow's nest when the Titanic hit the iceberg. They claim he is keeping watch over the Las Vegas exhibition's promenade deck and is driven by his guilt to keep watch even in death. Visitors have reported eerie sounds and unsettling feelings galore and some actual sightings of ghostly specters. Remember, here's a callback. Remember the story about the mirror that belonged to Bruce Ismay falling on the floor the day he died? Well, there is one claim from a crew member at the Luxor that they came in early morning to open the exhibit one day and found the portrait of Ismay on the floor. Now, it wasn't damaged, but they couldn't figure out how it got off the wall. And apparently there is a surveillance video from the night before where the picture is shaking and falls on the floor and there are no people in the room. Make of that what you will. As a photographer prepped one day for the opening of the exhibition, he spotted a woman casually walking down the replica of the grand staircase. He was startled, he said. He hadn't seen anyone enter. Everything was kind of still locked up for the morning. And nobody was allowed on the staircase yet at that point anyway. He figured she was part of the exhibit, maybe some sort of actor practicing, and asked if she'd like him to photograph her. 
and she ignored him. He went back to setting up and never figured out who she was or what she was. Another haunting story, according to Louise and Neil Bonner, who own the former home of Captain Smith, they claim he likes to make it known that he's still in his house. The couple has spent the last decade renting out the Victorian house. It was built in the 19th century. And their tenants have reported icy chills, strange noises, and even full-body apparitions of the captain. And apparently the property has also suffered a flood in the kitchen and weird cold gusts in the dining room. Now, perhaps the most chilling couple of stories I have saved for the end. And they're small. And bear with me. I know this episode is getting long, but these are worth sticking around a few more minutes. These are the two that when I read them and thought about them, made me go cold. And so here you go. Perhaps the most unusual story involving Captain Smith, at least, came from a man named Peter Pryall in mid-July of 1912. Three months after the sinking, Pryall served as a quartermaster during Captain Smith's tenure as the captain of the medic 20 years earlier. So this man knows Captain Smith. He has served with him. As a retired seaman, Pryall was living in Baltimore in 1912. He was on his way to his doctor when he spotted a man carrying two suitcases and wearing a light brown business suit, a straw hat, and tan shoes. Guys, I'm getting goosebumps as I read this. Pryall was then convinced that the man was Captain Smith. Pryall tried to speak to him, but there was no response. He then saw him a second time and they spoke briefly, during which the man confirmed, he claims, that he was Captain Smith and that he was departing for Washington. The White Star Line passed this encounter off, obviously, as mistaken identity. The story died out and newspaper coverage moved to something else. But, whoa. (laughs) And then lastly, another chill in my bones sort of a little mini story. Do you remember when I spoke with Veronica Hinky in the last episode about drinking and, di- and dining? We spoke about Dan Coxon, who was the popcorn vendor from Wisconsin, who died, unfortunately, on Titanic. And she mentioned that he was associated with some sort of haunted house in Wisconsin. Well, I looked it up. So in Merrill, Wisconsin, there was a house built in 1884 is when they started construction by a man named T.B. Scott. He was a lumber magnate and the city's first mayor. Now, supposedly the land that the house is built on was the burial spot of a well-known daughter of a Native American chief of the area. Construction was near complete in 1886 when T.B. Scott died after suffering from Bright's disease. His death seems to have begun a series of very unfortunate incidents for people associated with the mansion at all. His widow died one year later. His son was stabbed in 1902. The next owner became deranged and fell into ruin. And the one after that was also stabbed in Chicago on his way to take possession of the home. One man who had an office in the mansion literally disappeared. And the caretaker 
according to local lore, the caretaker at an earlier point in his life who lived on site? Dan Coxon. Dan the Popcorn Man. All right, you guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I know that that was a bit rambling, perhaps, but I wanted to fit in as many of these stories as I could. So intriguing. I also have some paranormal podcast recommendations if you are wanting to stay in the spooky season mood over the next couple of weeks. There is a great podcast called Haunted Road, hosted by a woman named Amy Bruni, who is a paranormal researcher. She is in the show Kindred Spirits on Discovery. And it is actually very well researched and well written. She takes a place that is has a reputation of being haunted and she breaks down the history like I did today kind of tries to contextualize where the reports of ghosts come from in terms of that place's history and then every episode she does a great interview with someone who works on site and a lot of these places are museums now it's a lot of historic homes And it's so great because she's giving a voice to docents, to researchers that work at these museums, giving them a chance to talk about the place they work. That's a great, it's just a great thing to do for a podcast. I'd love to do some of that on here. So recommend that Haunted Road. There's also a classic been around for years podcast called Astonishing Legends, which does these long form, heavily researched episodes about paranormal phenomenon, everything from the Sally House to a more recent episode about, you may have heard of it, the story in the 80s where a couple of roommates in Britain claimed to have been communicating to a 17th century ghost through an early home computer, or I guess a word processor. So they they cover all sorts of stories that run the gamut from medieval all the way to current. Uh, but it's, it's very well done and also very entertaining. They have a great sense of humor about everything. So I recommend that as well, Astonishing Legends. If you're more in the mood on focusing just on the history and you're at all into Southern history, I recommend Southern Mysteries, which is hosted by a woman named Shannon Ballard, who does just an unmatched job in researching, writing, and I mean, her voice is amazing in just brilliantly hosting stories of murders, hauntings, random strange mysteries all across the American South. I've been listening for years. It is fantastic. And then also lastly, the one I mentioned earlier, Real Life Ghost Stories. And a lot of the episodes of that are just reader stories read out loud. People have sent in their own personal accounts of some sort of paranormal activity or haunting. All right. I have one correction from last week from my dad, Robert. He was also mad that I didn't mention his name. His name is Robert. Well, we call him Pops. The kids call him Pops. So Pops told me that my episode on the 1953 film was great, but I got something wrong, which is it was perhaps not filmed in CinemaScope because the first CinemaScope picture was actually the year after that in 54. So I think I might have gotten that wrong. That is a correction I need to issue. Thank you for listening. Thank you for writing in. I have gotten so many amazing emails. One email I got actually gave me an idea for an episode, and it was from someone 
AJ, shout out AJ, who knew, who knows more about Thomas Andrews than I do. And opened up a dialogue about some amazing questions regarding Thomas Andrews, made me get excited about an episode involving him. So guys, this feedback is incredible. I respect all of you. Please continue to write to me, even if it's to tell me I got something wrong. I want to hear that. Absolutely. 100%. I am very appreciative of everyone who is following on Instagram. There's a great little dialogue going there. On Instagram, I am unsinkablepod. Same on Twitter. And my email is unsinkablepod at gmail.com. So just keep these communications coming. I have had, you can ask my husband, John, I when I respond to one of these emails that I get from a listener, it's like I want to research to respond to the email. I, I'm so excited to be engaged with you guys. So one last piece of little housekeeping is that I might in future weeks consider shifting to a Monday or Tuesday release. I've heard from some people that just for a podcast, that's a better better way to do it. So it might be something that I do. I've also got some really exciting interviews for the podcast lined up. I kind of want to keep them secret <laughs> so that there's suspense, but trust me, it's going to be amazing. And I And I really can't believe how fortunate I've been even already to be able to line up interviews with people who have listen to the podcast, really seem to understand what I'm trying to do and are willing to come on, you know, even though I'm an an amateur in so many ways and to have these meaningful conversations. That is one of the most exciting parts about this. All right. Have a fantastic weekend and week and rest of your spooky season. Please, like I said, contact me with any suggestions, concerns, with anything, and I will see you next time.